Certain products sell themselves. They require no marketing, no advertising. Some ideas, some ideals appeal to a ready-made clientele. In fact, here are some examples. Snow chains in a blizzard. Plywood before a hurricane. Firewood in a power outage. Toilet paper on a camping trip. There you go. Earplugs at a men's retreat. Oh, yeah. How about evergreen trees at Christmas time? Or tie-dye t-shirts at a Grateful Dead concert? Or maybe Metamucil at a chili cook-off? Or foam tomahawks at a Braves game? Or championship pennants at an Atlanta Hawks game? Or so we hope. Hey, certain products are sure sales. The demand is so great, Walmart doesn't even have to run a special. On my first trip to the island of Haiti, I ate the local food. For several days, I ate mystery meat. And I got so hungry, I would have given my right arm for a Big Mac. If the Domino's pizza man had showed up on my doorstep, he could have named his price. There are some situations where a product becomes an easy sale. You'd think when God strategized salvation, he would have offered a plan so appealing it would sell itself. No reason to preach or plead. The need would be so apparent, the solution so attractive. As soon as he set it on the shelf, folks would scoop it up. Salvation would be hard to keep in stock. You'd think God would dream up a salvation that made for an easy sale. Yet God did just the opposite. The means that God devised to forgive us of our sin and make, up, make us His child and to clean up our dirty lives and to guarantee for us a home in heaven rather than sell itself actually provokes an initial repulsion, even a resistance. You'd think God would have prescribed salvation as a tasty, cherry-flavored elixir, something that goes down smoothly. But to the contrary, salvation comes in a pill the size of a golf ball. God deliberately made salvation hard to swallow. you got to gulp hard to get it down. You see, the message of the cross is not palatable to human tastes. Unlike an accessory to your wardrobe, the cross doesn't go with the thing you're wearing. For most people, it clashes with where they're at and what they're into. In a society that idolizes, that idolizes style and that values vogue, the cross is like an ugly shirt stain. You hope it's far enough down that you can just tuck it in and no one notices. The message of the cross is an offense to human sensibilities. And that is exactly as God planned. God never intended for salvation to sell itself. God designed the cross to be an affront to all that we hold dear. It defies our pride and flies in the face of our values and shakes our status quo. You'd think God would have concocted it differently, but you'd thunk wrong. You see, the trend in churches today is to be trendy. We tend to value relevance above all of the traits it's all about being cool and hip and polished and non-offensive. 
Today's churches are most often measured by how well they relate to the secular cultural around them and the size of crowd that attracts. And understand, I'm not against being relevant. I believe our job is to bring the changeless gospel to a changing world. God's truth is timeless, yet timely. In fact, when God became man, He connected with His audience. He was relating firsthand to the human plight. He was empathizing with folks, feeling for them, relating to them. This is a big part of Christian ministry. But realize the incarnation was not an end in itself. Jesus was born to die. His coming to earth led to his crucifixion. For God knew that relevance doesn't produce righteousness. Salvation demanded a sacrifice. Though the ministry of Jesus began by his relating to mankind, it ended by him doing what no one else could do. Relevance gave way to righteousness and to holiness. It was a means to an end, but it was never an end in itself. And yet when a church values relevance above all else, it will inevitably shy away from the message of the cross. For the cross is not relevant to today's culture or to any culture for that matter, it's an offense to all that humans hold dear. You see, a church that's all about slick presentations and engaging entertainment and how-to suggestions and self-massaging sermons to the neglect of the cross has missed the very reason that it even exists. You see, without the message of the cross, pastors are just babysitters and churches are just country clubs. Years ago, Richard Niebuhr, he warned of a Christianity that preaches a God without wrath, trying to bring men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. Tragically, this is happening in many churches today. It reminds me of a British chapel. Its stone walls were covered with ivy. Over an arch were engraved the words, We preach Christ crucified. And the men who founded the church did. They preached the cross. But over time, the ivy grew along the arch. And it covered up the word crucified. So that the arch read, we preach Christ. This reflected what had happened to the church's message. They still spoke of Christ, but now as an example, or as a servant, or as a great humanitarian. Over the years, the ivy continued to grow until finally it covered up the word Christ. So that it read, we preach. And that's what this church does today. It's abandoned the message of the cross and preaches current events and pop psychology and social issues. Let's never forget the message of the cross is what forgives sins and saves souls and renews minds and transforms lives and heals hurts. It's the message of the cross. And in this morning's text, the Apostle Paul tells us why God offers salvation through the message of the cross. Paul gives the Corinthians four reasons. First, the cross shocks our senses. Second, the cross blocks our pride. Third, the cross mocks all of our values. And then fourth, the cross locks our hearts forever. We'll work line by line through our text this morning, and I want to pick out these reasons in detail. First, I want you to notice that the cross is a shock to our senses. 
You know, today, in many ways, the cross has been sanitized and popularized and even secularized. But in the beginning of Christianity, the cross of Jesus was a shock to our sense of decorum. It was ugly, grotesque, disgusting, revolting, repulsive, disturbing. You remember the famous hymn, The Old Rugged Cross? Author George Bernard, he describes the cross of Jesus as the emblem of suffering and shame. Notice verse 18 tells us, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul says to those who are perishing that the message of the cross, well, to them it's utter foolishness. And to those that are being saved, the message is utter power. But understand, no one who sees the cross for what it is can ignore it or just toss it aside as a mere relic. The cross is in your face. It has to be reckoned with. God intends for the cross to shock our senses and to grab our attention. You know, today, celebrities, they wear crosses tattooed on their shoulder, their chest. Baseball players cross themselves before stepping into the batter's box. Jewelers beat down their gold into earrings and necklaces in the shape of a cross. In fact, even candy makers market chocolate candy crosses for Christians to eat on Good Friday. But God chose the message of the cross to shock us and stir us. And this is why Satan has seen to it that the cross has been stripped of much of its shock effect. Many years ago, a cross was erected in a city park in Eugene, Oregon. It became a town landmark. In recent years, this upset some opponents of of religion in the area who filed a lawsuit against the city to have the cross removed. Well, the court let the cross stay, but this was their reason. The cross is simply a symbol, universally accepted. It no longer carries religious significance. Thus, it's allowable on public property. The cross no longer carries spiritual connotations. Welcome to our modern world. Reminds me of the woman who walked into a Denver jewelry store. She asked the man at the counter if she she could see a gold cross. The man answered, a plain one or one with a little man on it? We have become desensitized to the shock of the cross. There was, though, one cross that provoked the proper reaction. One Easter on a church lawn in Dallas, a 10-foot tall tall cross became the talk of Texas. It stirred controversy and bitter reaction. It upset both church members and atheists. Editorials were written. Its photo was in the newspapers and on TV. Outraged people were calling the local talk shows to vent their anger. What made the cross so controversial was it consisted of weapons confiscated by the Dallas PD. There were guns and pistols and knives and bayonets and bullets and bomb fragments, even broken bottles. The base of the cross consisted of a totaled out car ripped apart in a DUI accident. The display was surrounded by barbed wire entanglements, the kind you'd see outside of a prison. And the good people of Dallas, they were appalled. They started a petition to have this ugly cross removed. People called it a desecration. Someone even said, How can you turn the cross of Christ into a symbol of violence and pain and suffering? 
Excuse me? Hey, if you were around in the first century A.D., that is exactly how you would have seen the cross. The cross was the most hideous, torturous form of execution ever devised. Josephus, the Jewish historian who saw firsthand his share of crosses, called the cross the most wretched of deaths. Cicero wanted Roman citizens sheltered from even the sight of the cross. He wrote, the idea of a cross should never come near the bodies of Romans, never pass through their thoughts, eyes, or ears. Even members of the early church were repulsed by the cross. The cross was banned from depiction in the arts for the first four centuries of church history. Not until the emperor Constantine had abolished the crucifixion as a form of execution was the cross turned into an emblem of the church. C.S. Lewis pointed out, the crucifixion did not become common in art until all who had seen a real one had died off. If you had been standing before a crucifixion, a live crucifixion, you would have shivered in horror. You would have turned your head. It would have turned your stomach. For weeks afterwards, you would have had nightmares. Imagine me walking into church one Sunday wearing a little gold electric chair hanging around my neck. Or maybe a little silver hypodermic needle pin, you know, right there on the lapel of my jacket. Would you be offended? Jewelry in the form of an instrument of death? People today would be appalled. Well, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians about the message of the cross, it was the equivalent of me writing to you about the message of the electric chair. It was shocking. Have you ever happened on a traffic accident after the fact? You drive past the tangled metal, broken glasses everywhere, tire marks are tattooed on the street, and you sum up the situation, you shudder, wow, something serious just happened here. Lives were forever altered. Eternity might have been further populated. Well, you see, this is the conclusion that God intends for you and I to draw when we hear the message of the cross. When you see that Roman cross standing against the dark Jerusalem sky on a lonely hill called Calvary, God wants you to think this was not just business as usual. Something heavy happened here. Reminds me of the mom and the little girl on their way to the zoo. It was during Easter week, and they drove past church after church as the little girl counted up the crosses. She said, Mommy, how many times did Jesus have to die? Her mother replied, Only once, dear. The daughter replied, Well, then why are there so many crosses? She answered, To help us remember how much Jesus loves us, that he died on the cross in our place. The little girl was up in arms. She shouted, How could we ever forget something like that? And indeed, how could we? You see, that's what God thought when he packaged salvation in the message of the cross. The cross was intended to shock our senses and to grab our attention. But that's not all. In verse 19, Paul quotes Isaiah 29. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. You see, the cross shocks our senses, but then second, it blocks our pride. And here Paul is quite bold. 
He claims that through the cross, God intended to destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. The cross of Jesus was designed by God to wipe out all vestiges of human ego and arrogance. At the foot of the cross, Paul taunts the smartest humans. Verse 20, he asks, where is the wise? He calls out the experts to try and refute God's work on the cross. He says, where is the scribe? He challenges the university professors, the academics. Hey, put the cross under your microscope and see if you can dissect its power. He says, where is the disputer of this age? Paul says, bring on the debaters and the quick-witted talkers and let them try to dismiss the cross with their sarcasm. You see, Paul pits the wisdom of the boastful up against the power of the cross. And then he concludes, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Not even humanity's brightest can get their minds around the wisdom of God, the brilliance of the cross. It humbles us. Paul continues in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. Now notice, God is not against wisdom and education and human learning per se. He just didn't choose these things as vehicles for communicating divine knowledge. It was the Greek master Socrates who said, Oh, that someone would arise to show us God. Well, Paul lived 500 years after Socrates, and Greece was still in the dark. It's as if Paul is saying here, if God can be known through man's wisdom, then why are the world's wisest men standing around talking about God instead of talking to God? It is the cross, not human wisdom, that lets us know God. Understand, the cross is an anomaly in the history of God. It's really an aberration. It's not what we would have anticipated from God. It's sort of the twist in the plot that we didn't expect. God is all-powerful. He is all-wise. God destroys the wicked and vindicates the righteous. So why does He let His Son die at the hands of evil men? See, the cross was like a smoke alarm going off in your house. It's like an engine light illuminating on your dashboard. It's God's way of screaming out that something has gone wrong. The cross is God saying to us, man has a problem and it won't get better on its own. In essence, the cross is an affront to our ability to fix things. Man can't fix himself. Several years ago, we had a problem with the sliding door on our minivan. And I'm not a very mechanically oriented guy. And so my wife took it to two mechanically oriented friends of ours. And neither of them could repair it. My dad, who is the world's ultimate handyman, he worked two days trying to fix that door but failed. Well, that's when I told Kathy I was going to take care of the van. I didn't tell her that my plan was to take it to the nearby body shop. The guys there got it functional in five minutes. But when I returned home, Kath was gone. So I went into the garage. I got a few tools, stuck them in my back pocket, and I waited until she drove up. I was standing right there next to the van like I'd fixed it. Well, she was very happy to see that the door had been fixed, but she sure didn't buy my story. 
I tried to convince her that I had repaired that van myself. And if I could have gotten away with it, I might have just taken credit for fixing that van door. I mean, watch the crime and being a hero in your wife's eyes every once in a while. All men want their wife and kids to think there's nothing in the world that we can't fix. But that is exactly why God devised the cross. For one look at Jesus on that cross, behold the bleeding wounds in his hands and feet, his eyes rolled back in his head, blood oozing out of the punctures in his brow, Watch Jesus in excruciating pain as he hikes himself up on the spikes to grab one more breath. And at the cross, you realize, I can't fix this. If I could fix my sin-wrecked soul, if I could repair my broken heart, if I could clean up my record and whitewash my dirty mind, then Jesus would have never had to go there. The cross would have been unnecessary. You see, the cross was intended to humble us. If salvation came through power, we'd all start lifting weights. If it came through knowledge, we'd all go back to school. But since salvation comes through the cross, there's nothing we can do but just sit there, behold his blood-soaked body, and believe in the crucified Christ. The cross puts us in our place. Paul finishes verse 21 It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The cross destroys all pride. The cross sees to it once and for all that God is not known through human achievement or through human knowledge, but through simple faith. In Rembrandt's painting of the crucifixion, he has the dying Savior lifted up on the cross You also see the expressions of various bystanders. But in the center of the painting, there in blue, you'll see Rembrandt himself. For the painter realized that we all belong in the crucifixion scene. It's my sin and your sin that nailed Jesus to the tree. The cross happened because you and I needed it to happen. We couldn't fix ourselves. So Jesus fixed us. But not only did the cross shock our senses and block our pride, but God also intended for the cross to mock our values. On the cross, it was as if God was destroying all of man's family heirlooms, all of our treasures. He took all our worldly values and he trashed them. Notice verse 22 tells us, For Jews request a sign. And Greeks seek after wisdom. You see, the Jews and Greeks represented the two poles of human values. And it is fitting that they expected from God what they valued most. Thus, the Jews wanted a sign. They were into power. Whereas Greeks sought wisdom. They were into knowledge. But the cross appealed to neither power or knowledge. In fact, to the Jews, the cross was an indication of weakness. And to the Greeks, it was an act of foolishness. God gave them both the exact opposite of what they wanted. For on the cross, it was as if God were scoffing at what both Jews and Greeks valued most. Again, the Jews were into power. 
You remember their greatest heroes were known for their powerful exploits. Moses parted a sea. Joshua won military victories. Samson was a one-man Philistine wrecking crew. David, a giant killer. Elijah called fire from heaven. And the Jews wanted a Messiah who was just as powerful as the heroes of their past. That's why it's no surprise that the masses of Jews, they followed Jesus as long as he multiplied the loaves and fish and worked miracles. But once they realized that political power wasn't his goal, they started jumping off the bandwagon. Jews wanted a Savior with punch, not a suffering servant. And again, the Greeks were into knowledge. These were the descendants of Socrates and Plato. The Greeks were antiquity's great philosophers. In Athens, in fact, the favorite pastime was carefully crafting philosophies and then debating them on Mars Hill with the resident scholars. Yet where was the brilliance, the sophistication, the intellectual triumph in the cross? Rather than a stroke of genius, the cross seemed like a gigantic mistake. To the Greeks, if God authored the cross, then God is prone to accidents. In the minds of the Greeks, the cross was at best a bungle of efficiency, a waste of human resources, a noble idea spoiled in midstream. At worst, it was a cruel joke. And sometimes I wonder myself, God, why the cross? I mean, why didn't Jesus just toss Pilate out on his ear, slay the Roman legions with a single swipe, and just take the throne for himself right then and there? Jesus, why not impress us with your power? Like little giddy schoolgirls, let us feel your muscle and admire your strength. Or Jesus, why didn't you just show off your wisdom? Why didn't you journey to Athens and match wits with the smartest Greeks? You could have put your brilliance on display. Jesus could have explained the mysteries of life and boggled their brains with his omniscience. But oh, the cross... According to human taste, the cross is an embarrassment. In verse 22, Paul writes, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. To the Jews, the cross was a stumbling block. The phrase is a translation of the Greek word scandalon from which we get our English word scandal. The Jewish scriptures declared, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There was no room in Jewish theology or its value system for a martyred Messiah. And for Paul to preach Christ crucified was sheer scandalous to the Jews. The cross was blasphemous to the Jews and it was foolishness or silliness to the Greeks. And understand... The last 2,000 years has done very little to alter human values. We are still drawn to clout and power. It's the famous and the sexy and the strong and the privileged and the political. These are the ones that are still at center stage. We're still impressed with education and reputation and sophistication. In fact, the two anathemas in our scientific age are to appear either foolish or weak. It's amazing how even Christians have tried to remake Paul's message. They've tried to spruce up Christ crucified to appeal to modern values. 
Years ago, Norm Evans, a former Miami Dolphins lineman, he wrote in his book entitled On God Squad, he writes, I guarantee you Christ would be the toughest guy who ever played the game of football. If he were alive today, he'd be a six-foot, six-inch, 260-pound defensive tackle who would always make the big plays. He would be hard to keep out of the backfield for offensive linemen like myself. Wow, how about that for an object of power? Imagine Jesus, a six-foot-six, 260-pound defensive lineman. Fritz Peterson, a former New York Yankee, he imagined Jesus in a baseball uniform. He wrote, I firmly believe that if Jesus Christ were sliding into second base, he would knock the second baseman into left field to break up the double play. Christ might not throw a spitball, but he would play hard within the rules. Wait a minute. Let's take Jesus off the cross and put him on the defensive line. Turn him into a sack specialist. Let's wipe the blood off his beaten body. Put him in a uniform adorned with a Nike swoosh and send him into second base with his spikes high. Let's clean up his image. People are into power, not weakness. Broadway composer Andrew Lord Weber, he even goes further. As he planned a revival on the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, he commented on how he would cast the lead role. He says, Jesus has to have sex appeal and real star quality. Trust me, there is nothing sexy or glamorous about Christ crucified. And that is exactly as God intended. For the cross of Christ is to be an affront to our values of physical power and human wisdom and pleasing appearance. You see, the cross is a satire on what we treasure most. On the cross, God was mocking beauty and brains and brawn. The cross makes fun of our puny muscles and our shallow logic and our preoccupation with appearance. The message of the cross taps you on the shoulder and asks you the question, why are you wasting so much time down at that health club when the most powerful act in history was accomplished through weakness? The cross challenges us. Why put so much stock in your degrees and intellectual achievement when the wisdom of man calls God's wisdom foolishness? The cross confronts the image conscious. Hey, why worry about that hair that won't lay down when the Son of God hung naked and bleeding from an ugly cross. This is why Paul says of those who heard and received the message, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The message of the cross is more than just mere facts about Jesus' crucifixion. It's God's attempt to rearrange our priorities and to challenge our values. You see, the message of the cross is to impact us deeply. Instead of physical power and human wisdom and outward beauty, the cross focuses us on obedience, the obedience that Jesus modeled. The cross schools us on commitment and courage. Behold Jesus on the tree. He teaches us what love is all about. The cross is God's way of saying that we have gotten what's important all twisted up. Paul closes his thought in verse 25. B 
Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, the message of the cross, it shocks our senses, it blocks our pride, it mocks our values, but finally, it locks our hearts. For once you have seen the cross for what it truly is, its wisdom and its power, it captures your allegiance forever. God knew that the cross would be initially repulsive, that we'd have to get over our cultural refinement to accept it. God knew that to embrace the cross, we'd have to humble our hearts and step over our sinful pride. And God knew that it would challenge our values that it would force us to reassess and rearrange our priorities. God knows that handy men and handy women have a hard time admitting that they can't always fix stuff. But once you trust in the cross, its wonder and its power captures your heart and your loyalties forever. Reminds me of a World War II soldier who had grown weary of battle. He decided to go AWOL. It was a dark, rainy night when he slipped away from camp. After wandering in the woods of southern France for hours, he came to a pole by a roadside. He decided to climb the pole so he could get above the trees. Maybe he could spot a landmark, sort of get his bearings. When he reached the top of the pole, or what he thought was a telephone pole, a lightning bolt illuminated the night sky. The soldier turned toward the pole and right into the face of the crucified Christ. What he thought had been a telephone pole was a giant roadside crucifix. The soldier said later that one look at Jesus on that cross restored to him his bravery and his courage. The thought of what Jesus did re-energized him for the battle. If Jesus endured the cross for him, then he could hold his post a little longer. And this is what the cross does for us. It locks our hearts and holds us in tight allegiance to our master. How can you refuse a love that bore the cross? You see, the message of the cross is not a product that sells itself. There are formidable barriers to overcome for us to grasp its power and its beauty and its wisdom. The cross sees to it that we come to God on his terms rather than our own. The cross is a hard pill to swallow, but it is the medicine that we most desperately need. And God knows that if a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, is willing to come and embrace that cross to bypass their sensibilities and to set aside their pride and to rethink their priorities, then they will never leave. They will stay locked to that cross forever. Again, as John Bernard puts it, On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. And then the chorus, so I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it one day for a crown. God chooses for us to enter his kingdom through the door of paradox. Accept the weakness of the cross, and he unleashes his awesome power. Embrace its foolishness, and you become privy 
to the boundless wisdom of God. The cross is more powerful than nuclear fission. It's more intellectually challenging than quantum physics. But you never know it until you shed your sensibilities and you renounce your pride and you rethink your values and you put all of your faith in the crucified Christ. The message of the cross is not an easy sell. It requires some serious rearranging, but it is still the greatest bargain in history. God keeps all of his treasures hidden behind an ugly, uncouth, uncultured cross. Embrace the cross, my friends, and you will find the wisdom and the power of Almighty God. It's true. X still marks the spot. At a cursed cross is where we find all of God's blessings. Dave Hutto, he used to run a youth camp in Alabama. On a mountain there, he has a huge cross that gets illuminated every night. One day, a man appeared at Hutto's doorstep. He asked Dave if he could go and see the cross. As they headed up the mountain, he explained the reason for his visit. He had been the pilot of a small plane that had taken off in terrible weather from Atlanta to Birmingham. In fact, the man had left Atlanta in a deep depression. He was contemplating suicide. That's why he didn't mind leaving in such dangerous conditions. When the man flew over the state line, he got into trouble. The fog was so thick that his visibility was zero. He was lost. He was scared. And for the first time in years, he began to pray. And suddenly, through the fog, he saw a lighted cross. He radioed the tower. The controllers knew of the cross, and they used it to guide the pilot to safety. The experience had changed this pilot's life. As Dave Hutto and his new friend stood there in front of the cross, the man dropped to his knees and prayed, Lord, I have found my way back, and I will never be the same. The cross has led many a person back to God. See, here is where God gets our attention and abolishes our pride and reorders our priorities. At the cross, our love for Jesus forms a cord so strong it will never break. The cross captures our heart and never lets it go. Did you know the word crux is from crucifixion? It speaks of the cross. The gospel Paul preached, the message of the cross should be the crux of all we are and do and believe. The Jews stumbled over the cross. The Greeks laughed it off as foolishness and both sadly, tragically perished in their sin. But those who trust in the cross discover the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's not only embrace the cross this morning, let's relish it and rejoice in it, and marvel at it, and let's go one step further. Let's proclaim it boldly and share it with everyone we meet. As the little girl said, how could we ever forget something like that?